This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Um, The Christmas season is actually upon us now. Stores have been confused for weeks, thinking it was already upon us, but it was not. But it is now. I hope you guys had a great, great Thanksgiving. Um, I know we did. It was an enjoyable time. Uh, The older I get, I think the more I love Thanksgiving. It's just a great time to to break, to actually think about what we have to be grateful for, and to spend time with friends um, and family. Before we move into both the wonder and delight, as well as craziness of um, the Christmas season and New Year's. So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 33 this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to find Jeremiah chapter 33 on and follow along with us. You can uh, find that. You'll have some some time. You notice when you came in, as we kick off this season of Advent, and Advent is, is simply a word from the, the Latin word that means uh, coming or arrival. It's the time where we hopefully, through the power of the Spirit, focus our hearts and our minds in anticipation uh, of, of remembering and being renewed in and delighting in once again the birth of our Savior, as well as the anticipation that there is a time still yet to come where Jesus will return and indeed make all things new. Um, This little book by Rebecca McLaughlin is in your seats. That's a gift to you. We'd love for you to take that and actually read it. The chapters, four chapters, very short, five to to 10 minute reads uh, max. And this little book forms the outline of the, the sermon series that we're going to do through uh, through Advent. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, you may recognize her name. She's also, also uh, the author of uh, the secular creed that we give away to, to guests, first-time guests, people that are newer uh, to LNBC. Uh, Rebecca's interesting. She's British. She lives in the United States now and married a boy from Oklahoma. Interesting story behind that. She's uh, got a degree from King's College in London and a PhD from Cambridge but just a a wonderful writer and thinker about the place where the beauty and the power and the grace of the gospel intersects um, with current culture in the West. So she's a a real gift to the church right now, Um, a featured writer often on the Gospel Coalition and um, interviewee on podcasts. But uh, take this, read it. I think it will be a blessing to you. Um, This time of year, the message that we get in our culture, over and over and over is one of, uh, of an overrealized eschatology. And what I mean by that is um, everyone is telling you that, that all of your dreams and everything that you want is going to come true and be made right on the morning of December 25th. And luckily for you, they have the potential to sell you what's going to make all of that come true for you, for your spouse, for your friends, for your parents, for your children. And every year, great masses of us buy into this. And then December 26th and 7th tend to be a little rough. We wake up and we're reminded that we're still who we were. 
uh, that all of our brokenness is still there. It's the same thing that happens in the month of February every year when, when we've broken all of the commitments or aspirations we had on New Year's. And we realize, nope, we're, we're still the same person that we were. Um, and there's a consumerism that just, it just pulls at us. It's everywhere offering to sell you everything that's going to meet every need that you have. And my hope and my steady prayer for us through this season of Advent is that we are able individually and collectively as a body of Christ uh, to center ourselves on the beauty and the power of the gospel and not the stuff that's being sold to us through these weeks. And we want to, to help you do that in several ways. Uh, there's a reason that we're, we're preaching an Advent series here to try to help us center ourselves again on the centrality of the gospel. You guys will be receiving emails starting today that, that are a devotional uh, for Advent that you can choose to read and engage there. Um, if you haven't uh, already signed up and logged into uh, Right Now Media, that is a resource that we provide for you as a church for free that has a lot of great Advent uh, resources on there, videos and series that you can do as a family, you can do with kiddos, uh, you can do with friends or with your spouse. Uh, we'll be sending an email this afternoon just to everyone, just in case you haven't logged into that and created your own account where you can log in, create your account for free there. We also, December 1st, which I believe is Wednesday, uh, we'll be kicking off again our Greater Impact Special Offering. That will run all the way through December and January. Um, and our, our goal, hopefully, and we'll, you guys will receive packets in the mail this week. You'll get an email on Wednesday with that. But our, our desire with this each year is to stretch our, our generosity muscles, to encourage you to give like you haven't given um, throughout the year over and, abond, uh, uh, over and above joyfully, joyfully to God's kingdom work. And a good portion of that passes on right? This, this is how we fund the Lottie Moon offering. Some of you who are, have Southern Baptist backgrounds will be familiar with that. That's part of the International Mission Board's um, funding there. Uh, we will send money to support Orchard Africa, a fantastic uh, ministry in South Africa that ministers to South Africa in and through the churches there with leadership training, with agricultural help, with medicine, with education, um, in, not only in South Africa, but in surrounding countries, you know, with the new uh, odd new COVID uh, variant hitting there. It's going to be an apt time uh, and a rough time for Orchard Africa. Uh, nationally, we'll be supporting graffiti church and community ministries that we did last year on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, they do phenomenal ministry there among the most under-resourced that we have in our country. Locally, we'll be supporting PB Rich Middle School and Calvary Children's Home, as well as just evangelistic and outreach initiatives through our church and on our campus here. So uh, you'll find out more about that this week. But part of what we're wanting to do is recenter you because our hearts are where our money is always. Always, always, always. So we want to give you an opportunity and continually um, encourage you to be giving like you haven't given before. We uh, try to do that just as a family in ways. Sharon and JC, um, after Thanksgiving on Friday, went down uh, to Atlanta to the warehouse where boxes were being prepared to be shipped overseas uh, with Samaritan's Purse for Operation Christmas Child. 
Uh, and they spent most of Friday serving there, helping to prepare boxes with other volunteers and staff there to get those in the gospel message overseas uh, to children and families and communities around the world that Samaritan's Purse works with. Uh, one of the things that we do, and I just say this by way of encouraging you to think about what you're doing. One of the things that we do is we support um, children through Compassion International is give a little extra at this time so that they can have a more significant Christmas than they could otherwise. And that's just a way for us to remember that we could be spending that money, all that money on our kids, but they don't need much more stuff, right? They don't need any more stuff, actually. So we'll pass some of that money on uh, so Carol and Esther and Johannes can have um, some gospel-centered uh, Christmas teaching and training and gifts given to them over the Christmas season. So uh, this is all ways that we try um, individually as a family and as a church to, to push back a little bit and help ourselves stay grounded in the gospel through this season. Uh, this is also a season of questions, right? I mean, Christmas always is a season of questions like um, this debate that's been raging for about 200 years now, which really um, has at its base theological realities of when is it okay to decorate for Christmas? Can you do that before Thanksgiving or after? How many of you are hardcore not until after Thanksgiving people? Yeah, they're always prouder. The before Thanksgiving people are always a little, a little insecure, right? They're not quite sure what to think. But I'll say the last 18 to 24 months, have been disorienting enough that you put up your Christmas lights when you want to, right? You sing your jingle bells and whatever else you want when you want to. Uh, maybe we can extend some celebration this year. But those are questions. When do we put our lights up? How much do we decorate? When do we start listening to Christmas music? And if you're a large family like we are, you start at different times, right? We have children that the first inkling of fall means that they start listening to Christmas music uh, and pulling up Christmas movies. We've already had Elf on in our house and, and Christmas Vacation and other things like that. Um, where do you go? Whose family? Some of you are still in that season, right? We're like, do we go this family? Do we go that family? Do we try to do both like they want every year? Um, are the kids coming here? Are we going there? If the kids come here and the grandkids, how much stuff will they tear up while they're here? We love them. What degree of exhaustion will we experience by the time they depart and go back to where they belong and where they live? right? Who do we buy gifts for? Some of you have those people in your life, they buy gifts for everybody, and so you feel guilty. Don't worry about that. You just buy gifts for whoever you feel like you want to, what gifts we buy, so on and so forth. But there are some questions that matter. And one of the central questions that you and I um, ought to at least ask thoughtfully is a central question about the Christian faith that most of us in here feel like we already know the answer to. We're bought into, and I'll tell you why we're doing this, this this morning, but it's this question of, did Jesus really live? Just a basic central question that should be asked this time of year. Did Jesus really live? Was he actually a real person in human history? And if he did, how do we know that and what impact does that make? It, my desire for, for the message this morning in a room where most of us would emphatically say, yes, he was a real person. He did live. Though some of you may wrestle with this. My desire ultimately for us as we look at Jeremiah 33 and some of the reality around Jesus as a human being is that somehow by God's grace and mercy and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be edified this morning as we look again 
at the reality of Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean, this first century Palestinian who changed the world, that you would be edified and that your faith, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be grown, would be grown. That maybe you and I would again feel a sense of wonder and awe at who Jesus is and what God has done in and through him. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 33, beginning with verse 14. And I'll just set this up. These were not good days for the people of God, right? These were not good days for the people of God. Their continual cycles of unfaithfulness had led to the judgment of God after generations of patience and forbearance coming on at the hands of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom of Israel and at the hands of the Babylonians in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Jeremiah is, is prophesying, God is speaking to his people through Jeremiah in and around these days of uncertainty and calamity and cultural upheaval. Verse 14 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, that is Jerusalem, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in here. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to gather underneath the authority and encouragement and instruction and beauty of your word. God, I pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive what you have to share with us this morning. God, delight us again at who you are. Stir our affections for a God who can love so deeply and so widely that he would take on human flesh and experience the fullness of what we experience, taking on yourself, God, our sin, that we might be given your righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Speak to us, God, this morning. Do what only you can do through the power of your Spirit. I ask it in the perfect and powerful and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's walk through this passage just a little bit. This is one of of many passages that we find in the Old Testament pointing forward toward a time when God would do a unique and final work. A unique and final work. Verse 14 says, the days are coming, no matter how scattered you may be right now, no matter how broken things may appear right now, no matter how insecure and unsettled and unstable and disoriented you may be in this moment, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. Don't miss this here, because after the death of Solomon, Warring factions, sons fighting and generals fighting over the power and authority that were available in the vacuum following Solomon's death had caused a civil war and a split of the people of God into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And God is saying what human sin has torn apart, I'm coming in a day to put back together. And my blessing will not be limited to a fraction or a portion of my people, but to all my people. I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. Who's the active agent here, God or the people of God? God. Whenever I ask that question, just so you know, the answer will always be God. God is always the active agent in the redemption of his people. God is always the active agent in the transformation and sanctification of his people. God is always the active agent in the coming restoration of all things. God is the active agent. I will do it. And then he says a bit about how he's going to do it. In those days, those future days that God is speaking to his people about through Jeremiah, and at that time, I will make, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. When God says, I will make a righteous branch sprout, what God is saying is, it is my name and my glory and my honor and my integrity and my covenant faithfulness that's on the line here. And I will not be dishonored. I will not be disfamed, defamed, defamed. I am a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God whose love is everlasting. I will do what I have promised to do. And he says that this righteous branch will sprout from David's line. If you remember the genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew, it was so important that Matthew demonstrate that Jesus, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean, was from the household of David. He was a a branch that had sprouted from David's line, that he traced Jesus' lineage not only back to David, but all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to Abraham. What God is saying here, as we look at him saying, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout from David's line and he will do what is just and right in the land, is God is saying, I will raise up one. I will raise up one who will do four and on behalf of you, for and on behalf of you, what you cannot do for yourselves, what you cannot do for yourselves. And he uses Jerusalem here as this picture of the people of God. And he says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. There'll be this deliverance and this redemption of God's people from their sins and from the consequences of their sins that they were now living in the fruit of. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. It's this this reminder to us that it is God's righteousness and God's righteousness alone that will be attributed to his people in that day. God wins the victory on your behalf. There's what theologians call a a double imputation. Your sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness then is imputed to you by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God is speaking through Jeremiah first to the people in his day saying, the day is coming when I will act decisively on behalf of all my people. 
on behalf of all my people. And what's amazing is we see the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians chapter 4, and he describes the coming of Jesus Christ as happening in the fullness of time, or at the full and perfect time. What, what Paul is saying is that the birth of Jesus, the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth came at the exact time that God in his sovereign direction decided was the perfect moment in human history for the long-awaited promised Messiah to be born. And he comes. Here's, here's what I, I want us to walk through briefly because Jeremiah is standing long before the fulfillment of this. And it's so easy for us to look back. One of the ways that we read the, the Gospels and we lose a sense of the power is we read them always in light of their fulfillment already. We read them already knowing. And if we're not careful, we, we read them and we read them somewhat dismissively missing much of the tension and the reality of what's going on there because we stand on the other side of it. We stand on the other side of it. Jeremiah trusted in faith what he was writing here, moved by God's Spirit, but he didn't see the fulfillment and the reality of it. We believe that fulfillment and reality came in the person and work of Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you briefly four witnesses that I think stand up firmly and cry out yes to this question, was Jesus a real man? Did he really live and die as we see? The first is the witness of Scripture itself. And I don't just mean what it tells us. I mean the way it goes about telling us this story. Uh, you've heard me say this often. I try to point it out anytime we're looking in the Old Testament or the New Testament and the Gospels especially. If you were making up a story, you'd do a better job than this. If you were making up a story, you'd pick people who behaved better than Abraham did and his offspring and David and Solomon. You would have picked different disciples that weren't consistently embarrassing themselves for all of human history then to read about, right? And on and on it goes. There is this witness in Scripture itself that is so unique as to almost defy understanding if it weren't true. Philip Yancey in his a great little book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about this. He talks about his struggle uh, growing up in church and going to a fundamental Bible college where he realized uh, that Jesus would have been kicked out of the college for dressing and talking the way that he did, for spending time with who he did, and for making the choices that he did. And he said, that really caused me to be completely unsettled. And then I realized not only would Jesus have been kicked out of my Bible college straight up, he would have been kicked out of my church as well. And it caused a, a, a deep, long season of struggle and confusion for Yancey where he had to go back to the Gospels and in a sense try to rediscover Jesus as we find him there. And Yancey talks about how blown away he was by the, the, the brutal honesty of the Gospel witnesses. He said, one day miracles seemed to flow out of Jesus. The next day, his power was blocked somehow by people's lack of faith. One day he talked in detail about the second coming. Another, he knew neither the day nor the hour. 
He fled from arrest at one point and marched inexorably toward it at another. He spoke eloquently about peacemaking and then seems to tell his disciples at one point to procure swords. His extravagant claims about himself kept him at the center of controversy. But when he did something truly miraculous, he tended to be very quiet about it. As Walter Wink has said, if Jesus had never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. I think Wink is exactly right. And I want to challenge you this morning. If you do nothing else this this Advent season, choose one of the Gospels and read through it again. Choose one of the Gospels and read through it all the way beginning to end again. And as you start out, pray this prayer. God, help me to read this with fresh eyes. Help me to read this with a fresh heart. Help me to read this and by your spirit, see things I haven't seen before. Connect with you in ways I haven't connected before. Hear from you in ways I haven't heard from you before. See and understand you and myself and the world around me in ways I haven't before, God, that lead me to the ultimate Christian ethic of love. That's my challenge to you this morning as it comes to Scripture itself. That's the first witness. The second witness is the witness of the church. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has at one time or another been found at odds strongly and vehemently with every culture it's been in. And every culture from Rome to the Soviet Union to Russia, and I know the Soviet Union's not around, so don't email me that. I know it's Russia now. Um, to modern-day China, to shifts in the United States itself, have tried to stomp it out, and they can't do it. They can't do it. The harder they push, the more the church grows, the more the church flourishes. And I just want to say three particular ways that the church has consistently, for 2,000 years, given witness to the reality of this man who stands at the, at the center of human history. I was thinking about it this week. It's so funny. If you know the gospel stories, you know that um, when the the wise men of East of the East, the astrologers, uh, they come. They've been given uh, this this vision and this word about the King of the Jews being born, and they come and they inquire of Herod where he is. Herod gets all nervous, gives them kind of a fake story. They go out, and then Herod tries to kill baby Jesus by eventually just killing all the babies of a certain age within a region. And it's funny, nobody really remembers Herod for anything good in this world, yet all of human history is split in two now by the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing. But three ways that the church has consistently given this witness where the upside down kingdom of God and the counterculturalness that Jesus brought shines is in how we understand and operate within the realms of sex, power, and money. What we believe and how we operate. And I'll get a little bit ahead of myself here, but you can go back and read second and third and fourth century extra biblical um, writers speaking about this, this strange way of relating to these things among these Christ followers, among those who followed uh, the crucified Galilean, crucified under Pontius Pilate. But we believe sex is a, a good and beautiful gift of God. It's not dirty. It's not weird. It's a good and beautiful gift that God's give gives us for our joy, for procreation, for the furthering of God's will on earth. 
We also believe that, that it is really, really dangerous to the human psyche and the human soul, the, the entire being of a human being, when it is engaged in and exercised outside of the boundaries that God designed it to be utilized in, which is the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman, where a woman is safe and loved and encouraged and known in her wholeness and fullness, and where a man's passions and drive is limited to glorifying his spouse and God in that relationship and that gift. It's a unique thing. First and second century people would often comment how weird it was that Christians were so free with their money uh, and so stubbornly not free with their marriage bed. This was an immediate transformation of God's people with regard to sex. Power. Those of us who are the most gifted, the most powerful, are the ones who ought to be parking at the end of the parking lot. The ones who are giving the most away, the ones who are inviting people in, the ones who are the quietest. We've seen this over and over and over throughout human history, that God has a way of working power in an upside down fashion in the church. I remember being in Oxford a couple of years ago and going out to see us, Lewis's church where he and his brother and later in life, um, uh, Lewis's wife would attend faithfully each Sunday. Interesting thing, it's a different culture, of course, but uh, Lewis would often stop. He would walk to church all the time. He would stop on his way and have, a, have a, uh, a beer at his favorite pub, go to church, stop on the way back home and have a beer after church, and then go on home, right? So it's funny to walk around with a group of Baptists, um, and some not Baptists who were like, right on, you know? So uh, it was an interesting trip. But in there, in, in the little church there, it's interesting, there's a, a shorter pew that all three of them would, would sit on. And right beside it is, is a big pillar that goes up to help support the roof. And the guy that's kind of showing us around this small one-room church was saying his father was the treasurer uh, during the time that, that Lewis and his uh, brother and, and Lewis's uh, wife were there and knew Lewis well and said that we, we never had any financial needs as long as Lewis was here, but he never, he never trumpeted that. He just would come quietly and give uh, and would call me fairly consistently and say, what are the needs that the church may have? But they always sat there. And he said, Lewis always sat there uh, because that pillar largely closed him off. And after he really rose to fame in the 50s and 60s, he didn't want to be a distraction in worship. He didn't want to be a distraction in worship. He wanted to slide in to be a part of God's faithful worshiping community, to support it as he could and to use his gifts as he could and to slide out without being a distraction or so-called tooting his own horn. That's the difference in power with Christians and money. Christians immediately, you look at Scripture all the way back. I mean, so much of Scripture deals with money. It just does. Because money and our heart are completely tied together. And Christians throughout history have been known as this wildly generous people whose generosity, generosity, and not just generosity, but our posture about giving away resources and living intentionally below the line so that we can be generous in God's kingdom work has baffled outsiders looking in. You know, Paul writes that God loves a cheerful giver. Loves a cheerful giver. The word there is hilaria in the Greek word. It's the, it's the word we get our English word hilarious from. And it's this picture of people just laughing, filled with joy, just giving away and giving away and giving away. And I'll tell you, if you can't do that, the gospel has not seized your heart yet. I'm not saying that you may not, by God's grace, be, be saved. 
But I am saying the gospel has not seized your heart. Because this understanding of sex and power and money, which is so very different at every point to the world around us, regardless of your culture, has been the consistent witness of the church. And you trace it all the way back to this simple Galilean named Jesus who gave us the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. There's the witness of Scripture itself, the witness of the church. Uh, One more thing I'll say about the witness of the church. Um, In terms of its global nature, the center of Christianity is always shifting and has been shifting throughout its history. This is not true of the center of other great religions. The center of Islam is still right where the center of Islam was when it started. The center of Buddhism is still right where the center of Buddhism started. But the center of Christianity has shifted from the Mediterranean world and North Africa into Western Europe, across human history, and then from Western Europe to North America. And then a couple of decades ago, it shifted the center from North America down uh, to Latin America and Africa and Asia, and particularly Southeast Asia, because the whole world belongs to God. And his church is marching on toward that day that is still to come through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Third, there's the witness of early external sources. I'm not gonna say much about this. I just wanna mention it, of early external sources. So you don't think that the, the only place that Jesus and his followers are mentioned is in scripture. I, wanna, I won't get ahead of McLaughlin because you can read it in her little book. She brings up just a few of them in there and gives you sources you can go and look at, at more. But the Roman Empire, late toward the first century and certainly into the second century and third, did not know what to make of this growing movement that started out simply referred to as the way and would eventually become known as Christianity. They didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't stop it. The more they persecuted it, the more they grew. And yet they looked at Christians and they were the best citizens in the empire. They just would not bow to Rome. They would not worship Rome. Check out those external sources about Jesus' life. Fourth one, the final one we'll mention this morning, this morning is the witness of the wider world around us to the truth that this man once lived who spurned, spawned followers that have changed the world. Let me, let me give you something interesting around this. This comes from a John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? who is this man where he talks about Christ in human culture. And he says, look at the people Jesus brings together, those who claim his name, Jesse Jackson and Jerry Falwell, Jim Wallace and Jim Dobson, Anne Lamont and Thomas Kincaid, Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and Bill Clinton and Bill Shakespeare, Bono and Bach and Beverly Shea, Galileo and Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler. Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Akempis, T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, George Washington and Denzel Washington and George Washington Carver, Sojourner Truth and Robert E. Lee, Constantine and Charlemagne, Sarah Palin and Barack Obama, John Milton and Paul Bunyan and Mr. Rogers and Jimmy Carter and Peter the Great. Something about Jesus keeps prodding people to do what they would not do by human nature. Francis of Assisi gives up his possessions. Augustine gives up his mistress. John Newton gives up his slave trade. And Father Damien gives up his health. And around the world, there are not only churches that bear his name 
and the names of those of his apostles and earliest followers, but hospitals, primary schools, and universities, orphanages, and senior care centers, streets, and boulevards, and bridges, libraries, and food pantries, and movies, and music, and art, and more books than have been written about any other single figure in all of human history. Did Jesus Christ really live? Absolutely he did. There is no credible, sane scholar or historian. In fact, this is the witness of unbelieving historians who simply study Jesus as a historical figure. That there is no educated, sane historian who would come to any other conclusion than that this man lived. This first century Palestinian who stands at the center of human history actually lived and died under the rule of Rome and Pontius Pilate. That his supposed resurrection seemed to ignite something that nothing really but the power of that resurrection being true can account for. There's no other way to describe this movement of the church from a scared, tiny group of followers who scattered at his death to a global revolution that has led to over a third of the human population now claiming to be followers of this man. And if Jesus really lived, if this righteous branch, this sprout from David's line, really did come at the time appointed in his sovereign right by the heavenly Father to make us righteous and to undo all that sin had broken, you and I have to do something with him. You can't marginally follow Jesus. You can't take a little bit of what he said and dismiss other parts of what he said. What he said was too scandalous. It was too wild. It was too untamed, too unpredictable, and so was he. M. Scott Peck, some of you will know the renowned uh, 20th century psychiatrist and author um, of The Road Less Traveled, talks about his coming to faith in Jesus uh, in his 40s. And Scott Peck had, had looked around at other uh, philosophies, human philosophies, other religions, buying in here and buying in there and finding them wanting and lacking. And he kept getting hung up on this, on this Jesus man. And he decided to read the Gospels for himself, expecting to find what was a clearly, uh, a clearly embellished kind of story made up by Jesus' followers later to make him look like God. Peck writes this about his journey in the Gospels. I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man who was almost always continually frustrated. His frustration leaps out of virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? I also discovered a man who was often sad and anxious and sometimes even depressed. A man who was terribly, terribly lonely and yet often desperately needed to be alone. I discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. It occurred to me then that if the gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment, 
as I had assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus that three quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create. Portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with this unflappable, unshakable equanimity. But the Jesus of the Gospels did not have peace of mind as we ordinarily think of peace of mind in the world's terms. And insofar as we can be his followers, perhaps we won't either. Peck said the Jesus that he met in the Gospels changed his life forever. It didn't make him calm and proper. It set him free to be who God had called him to be. My prayer for you this morning and through the next four weeks this season of Advent leading up to Christmas is that you will meet this Jesus again in the Gospels, in the small groups you're involved in, in Bible studies, in your own personal devotion times, in Advent devotionals, as we gather and worship on Sunday mornings, as you give generously, specifically, that the gospel might take greater and greater and higher and higher place in your life, that you'll meet the Jesus of the gospels who has so interrupted human history and the course of human lives and the course of human history that you will again find yourself in wonder and awe of who he is, who God is, and the work of God's spirit in your life and beyond. Because I'll tell you this, Nobody is beyond his reach. Nobody. That's the message of this season. That God would step out of the eternity that was his forever being and place, come to earth, put on flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son, so that we might be willing to step into anyone's world at any time and bring truth and light and love. That's the Jesus I hope you meet again. Or maybe for the first time over the next few weeks. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. 